Hi, welcome to Five Days with Doug. I'm Doug Perkins. Today, I'm sitting down with a good friend of mine and mentor of mine, Brad Lubman. He's somebody I've known for years since my time being a student at the Eastman School of Music for a little while, and um, now for the better part of 10 years uh, as a friend and colleague in Ensemble Signal. Brad and I have been lucky enough to travel all over the place with that group and do fun projects together. So um, it's it's always a fun time to be with Signal because I know that means lots of good time hanging out with Brad. And this was no exception. We were just up in Buffalo wrapping up a year-long residency at the university and Signal um, was doing a concert of some Steve Reich and working with students up there. And um, well, we did what most musicians, any of you who have ever been to the June and Buffalo Festival, would know what we, we did, which was to hang out in the lobby of the Marriott Hotel in Amherst, New York. That seems to be oddly the hub of new music activity every June and uh, anytime Buffalo throws something up there. So um, we hung out for an hour in the lobby, started out just easing into it, and then um, I started asking Brad about conducting and music and things, and he got all fired up, and we had a really, really fun chat. So enjoy my conversation with Brad, and you will hear that this got conversation ends abruptly at an hour because uh, thanks to a tradition I believe started by uh, Mike Garfield, the trumpet player, uh, Ensemble Signal likes to have family dinner at Duff's at least once a trip to go eat some some very hot wings. I sat next to our sound man, Paul Coleman, which meant that I was subjected to some ghost pepper wings and those are very hot. So I can tell you that I've done that and I think I'm good. I'm not sure I have to do that again. Paul is crazy. But we had a great and fun uh, family dinner that night. And before that, Brad and I had this chat. I should also say, if you are interested in uh, the music of Signal, there is a new record coming out uh, on Harmonium Mundi, I think next month, uh, featuring the music of Steve Reich with Radio Rewrite and Double Sextet. I think it's going to be really, really great. And you should check it out. So look for that. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Brad Lubman. have it there we're just going to talk it's really you're overestimating what's about to happen <laughs> um well i'm happy we're here doing it because i realized we're in the we're in the lobby of the marriott hotel in buffalo outside of buffalo new york um which is an odd hub of new music activity and i think the location where our friendship may have blossomed um i think that our friendship blossomed the moment that we met it was just immediate. Wasn't well, it that? Was, it was powerful. Because that's you were playing timpani on the Warren piece at East. The Warren and Bassoon Trio. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's For right. bassoon, harp, and timpani. But but this is a, a special location. Um, and you mentioned Buffalo because I've been in, involved with the June and Buffalo Festival, I think, since like 1991. <laughs> that's a number of years. 
and it's a very special place. It's and and anything that goes on here in Buffalo that's under the auspices of David Felder is special. And Ensemble Signal comes here, and so yeah, this is a special place. But I guess it's one of those places where none of us have anything better to do than to come to the Marriott lobby after concerts. And so it happens here. Here's where the magic happens. That's true. That's true. And so, um, so what do you want to know? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I think we're just gonna we'll just talk. So as I told you, I think. You are you are everywhere all the time. At least the thing I'm trying to do sometimes is talk to people about what they've done for the last week in their lives as a point of departure for for what they've done in their whole lives. But so if we go if we if we if we go back a week, that puts you where does that put you? That puts me at a very very important highlight in my life. I mean Actually, I've had a lot of important highlights, and I feel very, very fortunate and very blessed and very lucky that I've been able to do a, a lot of stuff in the last... Thir- I mean, I I figure 30, 30 years is, like, you know, where I am, because it's around... It's roughly 1985 that I, I think I marked it as sort of the official professional start. The and start what, of my what happened? What do, you, what do you count as your start? Is that you and... Well, is that conducting at Purchase New York? No, 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 no. Um... Um, this will eventually lead up to what I did last week, why I say it was a highlight. But uh, I guess I say 1985 because so I graduated from, I was graduated from SUNY Purchase. That was my alma mater. That was my undergrad uh, in 1984. And I was a percussionist. I'm letting the, uh, I'm letting the room noise come into this. You know, John Cage would be really like that. It was like a parade. It's like a parade. It's like a loud contest. Anyway, you'll edit all this out. So anyway, um, actually, I mean, I could say that that I technically started freelancing uh, towards the end of 1984. I forget. I think it may have been October, November. I was called to play a chamber music piece that involved around, I think it was seven players. And I was uh, called as a percussionist and on, on that, on that uh, engagement. The flute player was also a conductor, Paul Dunkel. And at the second rehearsal, he said, uh, "He said, hey, nice job yesterday. I gave your name to my contractor who contracts the American Composers Orchestra and the New Orchestra of Westchester. And I thought to myself, you know, wow, that's wonderful, but yeah, I'll probably never hear from them. And about two or three months later, I heard from them. So, you know, end of 84, beginning of 1985, you know, I was in the freelance scene and uh, and conducting as a percussionist and conducting sort of happened... You know, maybe later in 85 or 86, you know, little new music ensembles in New York started to hire me for things. So anyway, um, and but to get back to your question about what I did last week, last week was in the space of the one week I made my debut with the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra of Amsterdam and the Orchestra of the Maggio Musicale Fiorentino. It was a really, really thrilling experience because both are really great orchestras. Um, the Concertgebouw Orchestra, I've been following, you know, uh, almost as, as ever since I started listening to classical music, which was when I was about 14 years old, and that was 1977. Um, and um, I remember when the Concertgebouw came to New York in 1978, we went and saw them at Carnegie Hall. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a mind-blowing experience because, I mean, I knew that they were, you know, the greatest orchestra in the world. Uh, one of the greatest orchestras in the world. I mean, there you know there are several of them, of, of course. Um, and I'm not one of these people that believes in which is the best, which is the greatest. 
you know, there are different great qualities about so many different orchestras. Um, but, you know, this was a favorite of mine, and, and uh, as was Bernard Haitink, who was then the music director, and I listened to so many recordings of theirs over the years, and that memory of that concert in Carnegie, which was, um, it was Beethoven First Symphony, and I'm pretty sure it was the fourth piano concerto with Vladimir Ashkenazi, and then it was the Beethoven Seventh. And it was just, you know, staggering to me to hear an orchestra play with such... Uh, unity on every level, right. you know, and and and, uh, and and sound and approach, and so to actually have the chance to conduct that orchestra is is for me it's a dream. I mean, it almost feels like it happened in a dream, you know. Um, they were really really fantastic group of people to work with, and that was a special highlight. And then a couple of days later, in Florence with the Maggio Musicale. Um, and an interesting program. That not even was a few days later, a few hours later. Well, no, it was a, well a few hours in terms of getting yeah. The concert about concert was a Tuesday night, and the Maggio Musicale rehearsal was the next afternoon at three. Uh, and the repertoire with the Maggio Musicale was Lachenmann, Haydn, and Mozart, Mozart Lind Symphony, uh, and Haydn Symphony Number no. Twenty Six. The Lachenmann is a concerto for clarinet and orchestra called Acanto. And uh, another great orchestra, fantastic, uh, you know, and especially with something like with, with the Mozart where, you know, everybody is so engaged. The eye contact, the moment to moment, we did things in the concert, you know, that were like the height of spontaneous music making. It's the thing that you, you sort of learn about and you live to do, um, you know. And in that case with the Mozart, did you, did you really feel that they were, did you feel that you were in control of it as it was happening? Were you part of it? Were you along for the ride? Were you? It, it was total uh, chamber music on a large level. I mean, literally, like you know, you l- look over at the concertmaster, look at the principal, you know, any one of the string principals or oboe, whatever it is, and you know, you decide in the moment, oh, we're going to go a little bit slower this time, you know, or let's now go extremely quiet on the repeat of the phrase, um, or this note needs to be accented. This one here, uh, it was incredible. The, the response, you know, it was something that I noticed in, in, in rehearsal, too. But in the concert, it was like at another, you know, a whole, a whole other level. Um, you know, the thing, what I wanted to just, just to comment on, on oh. the concert, Gabau, what I wanted to say was what was, there's a level of, it, it's like, it's not just discipline. It's not, ju- you know, it's like every category that you could imagine is there sort of what's the style of this piece what's the sound how do we blend as as a as a section how do we blend as a wind section as a brass section as the strings but the working atmosphere was so uh so positive but also so quick meaning that if the first two beats of something there is something that's not quite there the next two beats it's fixed uh-huh and again this is not saying that there are other orchestras i i am again i'm i feel very 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 privileged and blessed and lucky to be able to work with really so many great orchestras, uh, mostly in Germany, mostly the, the German radio orchestras. Um, so it's not like this is something that they don't do. They certainly do. This just was a different level of it in, you know, with, with the Concertgebouw. Um, and so that's, that was, that was last week. <laughs> because you, you, before that you were, where were you before you went to Europe? Were you, in Rochester? Um, 
because mm-hmm. you teach at Eastman. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do teach at Eastman, and we were the uh, no, I was in Los Angeles to hear the premiere of a new uh, piece of mine. Uh, Los Angeles. All right, Lamont so that was just last week that you. That was the premiere was on April twelfth. Okay. You see, uh, a piece with two pianos and two percussion called Tangents, played by members of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, played brilliantly by them. And then, that, okay, so that was April twelfth, and then on April twentieth, flew to Amsterdam, and then had like a couple of rehearsals, and then that takes us to the following week, which was the concert with the Concertgebouw, and then the and then the orchestra Maggio Musicale in Florence. Prior to the premiere in Los Angeles was Eastman Music Nova playing at the Kennedy Center. Right. Because they have this really wonderful series called the Conservatory Project. And they invite, obviously they invite soloists and ensembles from conservatories around the country. Eastman has been going there for about 10 years, but never was represented by the Music Nova ensemble. So we were all very happy that we were invited to go down there. Um, You know, so... But then, yeah, and and then I was in in Europe prior to that. It, it's it's you know it's sort of a commute. <laughs> it's a little bit of a commute. Yeah, and I'm always in 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 different places, and I I really like that very very much. Um, it's funny when I was a kid. I don't know how I old I was. Maybe I was about eight or nine. I remember going to a travel agency. Um, I don't remember why. I mean, not on my own, obviously. You know, right. with my mother. And I remember taking home tons of brochures, uh, probably because they just were colorful looking and and whatever. But I remember being fascinated with the idea of different cultures. I went through a period where um, I sort of, you know, I wished it wouldn't be great if you could travel you know, go to Japan, go to Norway, go to Hawaii, go to France, you know, and experience the cultures, like the the food. I was really curious. What does food taste like from all these different countries? Keep in mind, I was about, you know, eight or nine years old. And then I, so I had all these brochures from the travel agent. And I was also really into, um, around that time, maybe a couple years later, I was into into airplanes. And that was, was around the time that the Concorde SST was, was, okay. was coming out, you know. Anyway, so it's just kind of funny that, all these years later, I get to do all this traveling, you know, because people will ask me, say, you know, so, do you like doing all that traveling? I said, yeah, actually I do. I really do. It's very, very exciting and um, it's incredible. I, I love it. You know, it's tiring. But, you know, someone said the other day, said, so are you jet lagged? I said, I'm always jet lagged. Right. You know, you you just sort of. You learn you learn to live with it, but also I have a I have a way of making up uh of catching up with sleep. Yeah, I was gonna say, how do you maintain your energy when you travel as much as you do? Uh lots of coffee and chocolate. That's basically <laughs> it. I'm not kidding. Me uh too. that that seems to be what, what, what works. You know what actually it is though, I have to say, and this is gonna sound corny, I know, but I really mean this, is is the music itself and the musicians. That that is that I could feel I could like get up and think, my God, how am I going to get through this rehearsal? I I just really need to sleep, or you know, I think it's all catching up with me. Boom! Once the rehearsal starts, it just the energy comes. I don't even know where, and I usually surprise myself at how much energy is there. Once the rehearsal is over, then I, you know that's it. I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of out. But it's working with different people. Um, you know, which is strange when I think of how shy I was as a, as a kid. I was I was 
painfully shy. I shouldn't even be a conductor. I was so shy, you know, because being a conductor is you are dealing with people. You're relating to people. It's almost like you get up there and you say, hey, everyone, this is me. This is what I look like. This is what I look like with my clothes off. You know, it's (laughs) like it's unbelievably, you're unbelievably exposed when you're in front of a group of people, whether you're a conductor, a teacher, the president, the CEO, you know, bam, you're there. Everyone is sizing you up and judging you. And as a kid, I was really, really shy. But anyway, so what keeps me going aside from the coffee and chocolate is working with people and the music itself. You know, that's really it. But what does happen is that there'll be every so often, I don't know if it's once a month, probably less than that, a day or two where I actually will just sleep a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, put on the iPod. I'm also, I'm obsessed with music. I mean, for somebody that does a lot of music, I'm constantly listening to different types of music. When I do take these sort of, you know, catch up on my sleep type of naps, which I actually was doing just before we we met, I'll put on the iPod. And what's really a cool experience for me is waking up and knowing where I am in whatever I'm listening to and thinking, whoa, I've been sleeping for 20 minutes because (laughs) I missed, you know, I missed X, Y, and Z. How did I sleep through that, you know? And that's actually kind of a cool feeling. I, I gauge my sleep based on, you know, what I missed when I was when I had the iPod on. I always remember when I, the first moment I started to get into when I, I thought contemporary music. When I went from being curious about it to realizing that it might be something I need to know a lot about, I took a nap to "Music for a Summer Evening" by George Crumb yes. in college. Yes, I had this distinct memory of going to my room, being exhausted as. Sometimes we are in college. And I put it on sort of at the beginning. I remember falling asleep when it was, I wasn't making sense of it, but waking up at the climax at the end when there's just these chimes and yeah. xylophones, yeah, and these yeah. repeated piano things, and just kind of like, it was like I woke up in another world. Yes. And my room was just alive with all of these sounds. And I, was, I just remember like laying on my bed blissfully going, oh my God, this is the best sound I've ever heard. Yeah. Which was, it was... So delightful. I remember that. I remember taking a nap during Mahler 4. Falling asleep, kind of hearing the sleigh bells at the beginning. Falling asleep. Then waking up in the last movement to the to the voice and kind of just knowing it was the best rest. It was so wonderfully restful. Yes, that's exa- I know the feeling. Absolutely. Of course, I would like to just insert here that sometimes the opposite can happen. And this is terrible. That you are falling asleep listening to the wrong thing. And by that I mean... That piece of music where about 15 minutes in, there's going to be something unbelievably, excuse me, unbelievably loud, like huge cymbal crash or, you know, huge, <laughs> or right. and it wakes you up with a jolt. That has happened to me on more than one occasion, you know, where you're falling asleep. You say, I shouldn't be listening to this. I shouldn't because, you know, there's going to be that, you know, whatever, that huge chord or that the cymbal crash or whatever, the sudden loud thing. And you fall asleep. And yes, 15 minutes later, this Boom. thing, wait, yes, shocks the hell out of you. My son has been falling asleep lately to um, Paul Lansky's music, Tables Clear, um, because uh, well, it's it's hypnotic and wonderful and sick and has all the good sleep things. But halfway through, um, Paul's son he sampled it when his son was he built it with his son when he was little, where they sampled kitchen items, right? But also he sampled his son making fart sounds with his armpit. That's nice. So my son just that's, patiently that's, sits in bed waiting for armpit sounds. <laughs> so he calls it the fart song. Like, yeah, what else would you hear the fart it? song? Like, okay. 
That's why this is a very sophisticated uh, conversation we're having for this <laughs> this podcast. Well, I think it's you know it's honest. It's a wonderful piece of music by a great composer. It just happens to have armpit farts in it, and that can be fun. You know, I mean, there's all different <laughs> types of music concrete. <laughs> That's right. So, um, does it when you're conducting, thinking about the way you describe your experience with the Concertgebouw and your shyness with conducting? How do you? I think. I think I would be okay, but to hear you describe it, it sounds terrifying. How do you just stop from going, oh my God, I don't know this score well enough? Well, I'm what do you mean? I'm I mean, going to put know, close you know, the score and go home. No, no, no. Well, first of all, I should just say that the, this whole shyness thing, it actually doesn't have anything to do with conducting. It's that, because it, the first thing I ever conducted um, was the Dvorak Wind Serenade, and I was a sophomore at, at college. And I, you know, I decided that this dream of conducting, which I had been obsessed with, and I had been practicing conducting, standing in front of, you know, a mirror and practicing with records for probably about three or four years. That was my, my high school years. That's what I did, you know, in my free time. I thought, you know, maybe I'm wasting my time because maybe I'm going to be awful if I really do it. I got to put this dream to the test. And so um, in speaking with a, a wind player, I said, you know, I really want to organize an orchestra and you know, they said, well, you know what? I, I want to do the Dvorak, Dvorak Wind Serenade, and that's going to be fewer players to have to get together. He says, I'll help you get the players. Great. And I just went in there at the first rehearsal, and bam, I just gave the downbeat, and it just it, it worked. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and I, it's just weird. I didn't have, you know, the sort of whatever shyness I had wasn't there in terms of the ability to communicate with the players, to rehearse, um and so but you so now that's just to, to to clarify the fact that the shyness is not something that was ever there with conducting it was never it's like with performing people say have i ever been nervous meaning as a percussionist as a conductor right. no i might be you know sort of anxious to like oh i'd love to just get on stage now and do this i'm looking forward to it but i can't say that i've ever been like nervous in that sort of doubtful way that people freak out uh i feel very lucky about that too but your question was, was it about working? Well, just when you're standing in front of the Concertgebouw and you're taking that walk from the green room to the stage and you open up that score and you hear them just killing it and you know that you're in charge of it and this is your chance to elevate the Concertgebouw. That's a, that could be... I don't know if you can elevate them. They're already elevated. Well, you know, but it's your <laughs> chance. It's like... You know, somebody gives you the keys to the Lamborghini and says, go ahead, go for it. Maybe it just never occurs to you. No. Uh, It doesn't because, see, the way I see it is this. I see, you know, conducting is that the conductor, orchestral situation is large chamber music, right? Or any situation, whether it's an orchestra or a new music ensemble, small ensemble, large ensemble, whatever it is, the conductor is one of the musicians. I will maintain this forever. And it's very interesting because I think sometimes you can tell when the conductor is somebody that might not have the experience of having played in an ensemble for very long or playing chamber music. Because with conducting, you know, it's a funny, fine line that we're always walking which is that yes sometimes you need to really sort of you know take control and you know and this is the tempo and other times it's more like chamber music in that you 
you you have to have an idea of the tempo, but then you have to listen and receive, and it's constantly a a fine balance. Um, so, I, uh, I it's it's actually it's hard to even des- describe because it's not something that I, I mean I can't really put it into words. Really, you know, you just sort of you get a sense. There's a communication thing. There's a mutual respect sort of thing that happens. Um, what I tell young conductors, what I tell student conductors is that, look, when you're walking up to the podium, the orchestra is already deciding what they think of you. Some people will then wait to see your upbeat and your downbeat. <laughs> Some people will wait until 20 minutes, and others will wait till the end of that first rehearsal. You know, they're varying degrees. Um, and no, that doesn't mean that you should practice walking up to the podium. I mean, you can't do that. Right. Well, there's some who do. I mean, there's some people, I think, who practice, you know, what they're going to say and how they're going to look and what sort of shirt they're going to wear. And, you know, and, and uh, you just got to be yourself in the end. I think that's the important thing. But it's this, I approach it as it's mutual musical respect. You know, we all went to fine conservatories. We all were trained you know, uh, in in similar ways, we all have the same goals that we're looking for. Let's make this happen. That's basically what it is. You know, it's always um, struck me with you that um, I guess when I think about myself, it just never even occurred to me being. I grew up in Pittsburgh, uh, and I grew up watching. Lauren Mazel was the music director when I was growing up, so I feel like there was a. He wears the maestro moniker and a and in, in many ways even though he was from pittsburgh he, there was a sense of he was he was more than himself and so i think it just it just as a as a guy from suburban pennsylvania uh never even occurred to me th- that as a as a as an aspiration um but i think one thing that's been interesting in working with you is that it's um you're awfully human about the whole experience that makes sense. Thank you. And that I try to be, because you don't always run into that. Whereas there is you and I. Well, and because I think you come at it honestly. Uh, well, again, I, I I thank you for that because I mean, look, let's let's be honest. If anybody is standing in front of a group of people doing anything, that person has to have there has to be something ego wise. You know. And so I'm not saying that, you know, that unless you have a big ego, you, you know, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't conduct. I'm not saying that I don't have an ego, and I'm not saying that I do have one. I don't know what I have. I just have a, a sort of a burning passion to share music with people. And I can say, luckily, after all these years, that it's still there. I still feel like I'm somewhere between, like, 15 years old and 25 when it comes to you know, music and that, that, that thing that just, you know, made you in a kind of obsessive way say, I must do this. Actually, it started when I was even younger. It started with uh, seeing the Beatles on TV. That was really the first thing. And I don't remember how old I was, five or six years old. And I, I just wanted to be the Beatles. I wanted to be a rock star. By the age of seven, I was already taking drum lessons. And I, I seemed to have picked it up relatively, relatively easily. I tried piano. I tried guitar. And somehow drumming just seemed to be something that just happened, you know. Um, what was your first drum kit? Well, the first thing I ever did was I somehow took, like, you know, a trash can, you know, and a 
a, a big telephone book, maybe, I can't remember, an attache case. I just sat on the floor, and I put these three or four objects together, and I had, they weren't sticks, they were plastic tubular things from some game or something like that, and I would just mm. bang along with that. My next-door neighbor, uh, I remember one day going over, you know, going over his house, and in his room he had a snare drum. I said, oh, he said, yeah, I'm taking lessons from the neighbor across the street. And my memory of it, which who knows if it's accurate, was, you know how little kids are, oh, he's doing it, I want to do it. Of course. So I want to take drum lessons, so I started to take drum lessons with the same neighbor. And my first drum kit was a brand, it was a Japanese import called Ideal. You know? Oh, nice. Now, I say that because in, tho- in, in those days, your choices were... You had you had uh, sort of the the domestic brands of Ludwig, Slingerland, and Gretsch, uh-huh. Rogers. Uh, the other brands I'm, there was a um, it was Pearl, but that wasn't as popular then. We're talking about the late sixties, um, and then you had these other brands that were called Ideal, Stewart. Uh, I can't forget what you know. They were all kind of the same. We went to a music store. I should I should add that my my dad, when he was a teenager, worked in the Catskills at one of the hotels, bussing tables, and then at midnight, he then sat in with the band on drums because oh. what happened was if I get this if I'm getting the story correct, whoever the drummer was wasn't going to be able to make it that summer, and so a friend of my dad's who played in the band said, you know we need a drummer, he says well I can't he said hey let me show you a few things. And he showed him, a, you know, a couple of beats that he had to do. And so, anyway, so here I was now, seven or eight years old, and really interested in the drums. And so we what went color? to... What color were the drums? The blue sparkle. Yeah, it's very important. So we went to a place called Silver and Horland. Now, I believe this was the summer of 1970. And uh, what's interesting is that I remember... So we, we, I lived... I grew up on Long Island, about 30 minutes outside of New York. We went in, went to Silver and Horland, Horland, got the drum set, and I can remember what was on the radio when we were driving back home. Nice. And I remember driving, we were on Park Avenue, where the, what used to be called the, um, the uh, it's now the MetLife building. Okay. You know, with the Pan Am building. It was a beautiful, clear, sunny day. And on the radio was, uh, oh, is it the Youngbloods? Come on, people now. That was on the radio. I will never forget that. What's interesting is that that same summer, 1970, is when Steve Reich went to study in Ghana. Uh-huh. And I have actually, I'm such a nerd, I think I tried to look up on the map where Silver and Holland used to be located in relation to where he was living. And I believe okay. it was like a few blocks away. Oh, it's, really? just, it's just one of those things that you say, you know, there I was, you know, eight years old, getting my first drum set from a store that was a few blocks away from Steve Reich who was going to Ghana that, uh, to study, you know, African drumming that, that summer. Um, anyway, but uh, I think we were straying from some point. I don't forget what it was. We but were straying many points, but Yeah, there okay. are many. Well, because, because what's, this is as interesting as anything, because you... Oh, I know what we were talking about. Uh, go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, just because you, you, like myself at heart, are a drummer. I do. I feel that way. You know, for years I, I tried to th- look. There was a certain point. I remember. You know, I remember in the so in the mid eighties. Um, I auditioned for as after undergrad school. I auditioned for two uh, master's programs in conducting, and I I didn't I didn't you know get in. 
um uh, although some you know it was the sort of thing was like yeah i don't know you know you should have gotten in we thought you were good and i just thought you know what this is i, I don't i don't want to study in a school uh i want to do the old-fashioned thing where i'm going to play as a percussionist and i'm going to continue to you know try to perfect and improve my ear training skills at home and you know piano chops and score reading and stuff like that and i'm also going to compose because i wanted to compose too and I thought I'm just gonna do, I'm gonna be the practitioner of everything, and I'm gonna learn from the inside. And I had already been conducting for you know on my own for about five years, and I had gone to the Aspen Music Festival conducting program in '83 and '84. Um, so I thought, well, I have kind of a basic experience, and I thought, well, you know, someone like Toscanini didn't have a degree in conducting, and Boulez didn't have a degree. Boulez was self-taught, and he, you know, was conducting small ensembles and doing new music. I'll do the same. So that was that was kind of what I, you know, what I was doing. And um, you know, before w- the question was sort of like the maestro image and the ego and stuff like that. And I, I think that I think that you're always going to find, not just in conductors but in instrumentalists, you're going to find those who are somehow perhaps trying to let the music speak for itself and and others whose personalities are just super huge and i don't think that it's not particularly one is better than the other it's just something that happens you can't explain it you know um and with conductors um you know you will find that there are those people who perhaps get the results by the sheer will of their personality and others who are just sort of like the conductor's conductor or the musician's musician you know um others who get results by speaking a lot in rehearsals and others who get results by not speaking very very much maybe it's through their gestures maybe it's through eye contact maybe it's through who you know who knows what um but that was just I wanted to make that because you, you, you were talking about how Mizell seemed to embody the, you know, the, the, the maestro. maestro he was thing. the classic maestro. But like. you know, there's one thing I, I'd like to say, sort of in defense of that, because he, you, you know, that he started out conducting when he was like nine years old, nine years old, wearing wearing shorts, knickers, standing in front of Tuscany's NBC Symphony, and I think some people, if I remember the stories I've read, some people in the orchestra maybe had been laughing because, like, look at this child, what is you know. Well, I'm not saying that in a bad way, but I, I thought it was wonderful, and I you know, got to work yeah, with him a couple times. Yeah, he was a supreme technician's technician, a fantastic conductor, virtuoso violinist, you know. Uh-huh. But just, uh, just the he seemed uh, cut from a different enough cloth that I thought, well, this isn't, why would, you know, just didn't, it just, some of, they feel like they come from another place. Right. Well, you know, that it's as I said, there are those people who who come in. Look, it's like if you've ever read the um Lao Tzu's, you know, the Tao Te Ching, there's one um, I'm not going to quote it cuz I haven't read this in a while, but there was one of the little, you know, uh <coughs> one of the little bits about a leader. You know, and it says basically, you know, a leader is good if people obey, you know, him. I should say him or her now. Uh, or maybe it should have always said that uh, a leader is okay. A leader is best when hardly noticed, and the people say, "Wow, we did this ourselves." Right. And I read that, <clears throat> you know, when I was first in college, I took a great interest in a lot of things, um, a lot of Eastern 
philosophy and things like that. I read a lot in Zen Buddhism and in Taoism and things like that. And of course, because I was interested in conducting, I was interested in things like that. And that always struck me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's, it's maybe it's a decision that one makes. You know, you either decide, I'm going to go in there and this is my show, everybody. And then maybe you sort of, the other type of person secretly maybe thinks that, but you realize in the end, no, it's not my, it's, it's ours, it's us. And that, of course, links up to a whole thing about, you know, cultivating a community and world peace and all sorts of things like that, which I actually do think about, only I don't, you know, it, it's, it's not, I'm not going to use it as a reason to make music, but like underneath it all, you say, wow, look at this. Look at all these people in this room who are making music together and, and, and loving it and bringing something important to the people who are going to listen. And it's you, you cultivate a community, and you, you do feel in some ways that perhaps you're adding to the possibilities for achieving world peace. Uh, yeah, I think, well... You didn't think we were going to talk about that, did you? Well, I always hope. <laughs> I can hope for it. I think, you know, and certainly you must feel that with... Um, which is probably why you're, you keep teaching. I know that we are... I know that I exhaust myself teaching because putting ourselves out there that way, it's you most directly see that when you light those fires, those people come directly for it. You also hope to light those fires professionally as well. Yes, it's true. The thing with teaching, what's it was different. Now you have to also understand that I've been teaching as as soon as I was playing professionally and conducting professionally. It all just happened like right away. So at the age of 23, when I was a freelance percussionist in New York, I was also a part-time faculty at SUNY Purchase, where I was, right. I was assistant conductor of the orchestra, and I was doing one or two pieces with the percussion ensemble, and I was giving some timpani lessons. So I've always been immersed in that. Well, but and I guess just teaching to teach is also different than that inspiration thing. Right. Well, also to blow that out, I'm realizing I went directly to teaching, but I know also part of why you wanted to fly halfway around the world to go conduct in Italy is that conducting Lachenmann, you were unlocking new possibilities by, I think you probably get most excited about that in some ways that by presenting that kind of music to an orchestra that where that music is completely foreign, that you're unlocking potential and changing sounds for the future. And That's true. And I, but I must say that, you know, that program was uh, coming from one of the artistic directors of that orchestra, which was, we want to now introduce new music. It's time to introduce new music. So, for example, in I think in a week or two, the next program they're doing there with a guest conductor has Sariaho uh, with maybe Brahms. I forget what their programs are. Um, this is an extreme one, you know, Lachenmann along with Haydn and Mozart. But I thought it was wonderful. I have, for years, for decades... Since the mid-90s or early 90s, I remember thinking, you know, we've come to a time now where musicians are so versatile that you no longer need to have your new music specialists who aren't going to play older music or your traditional specialists who aren't going to play any new music. We're finding a crossover now. And, and I think it's important to bring the two things together. So I was very, very happy to be asked to do this program because it's exactly what I've wanted to do. But also, I was very happy because you have to understand that for for 30 years, most of the time I've been asked to do hardcore new music programs or, you know, new music programs that are focusing on only one type of new music. And seldom is it like, and we want you to do Mozart on this program. Um, because I don't consider myself to be a new music specialist at all, never have. Um, I've always loved everything 
Um, and uh, the world is just starting to allow you to do it. Uh, yeah, well, and, and in many ways, I'm I'm happy that it's taken this long because when I look back, if I think even ten years ago, not that I think, oh, I wouldn't have done as as good a job, but I was not the I was just not the person I was back then, and I always see myself. So to you know to comment on what you were saying before about opening up the doors or lighting the sparks. In some ways, it's also it's. I feel like I'm on some sort of a, a you know a mission. Maybe it's a peace mission or something like that. Because you have an orchestra that's never played Lachemann, and it's hard for them. And they're saying it's hard for them. And we're all trying. And Lachemann is there. And it's a friendly atmosphere. And it's a wonderful atmosphere. And little by little, you know, from one day to the next, you start to go, oh, hey, wait, no, there's, it's going to happen. They're going to get it. And then it, then it goes. Um, you know, to such a great degree that you do realize that maybe you've turned on, you know, there have been some, some lights have gone on, but more importantly is you see all these people now who are accepting, who are applauding the composer because Lachemann was there genuinely. And again, I bring it back to, to, to peace or to world peace or something like that. Look at this community that we, we've now built. Uh, I'm not saying that this orchestra is going to run out now and buy all of Lachemann's recordings and say let's let's continue to play this. But perhaps more of them are going to be more you know more more open to it. Uh, but think of the audience too. Think of the audience that came, who perhaps they come and they hear, they hear a lot of opera and they hear traditional repertoire. Now they've heard new music in a different light because they've heard it in relation to Haydn and Mozart. But then it goes the other way around. And I remember reading a thing where von Karajan said that everything you do influences everything else. And he said, for example, uh, he was saying that, you know, this week we are recording Webern, but the concert series we're doing is Brahms. And he said, so the Webern recording session in the morning will influence our Brahms performance at night, and that Brahms performance that night will influence the next morning's Webern recording session. I remember reading that, and it's stuck with me ever since. I said, yes. That's how everything should be. You have to learn to see the connections in everything. If I if I may get back to teaching, I want to yeah, I do yeah, want to say something about that because I'm teaching because I've been asked to teach. I'm not. I don't want to say like you know it begrudgingly. Certainly not at all. But the teaching aspect of what I do is something that I've worked very hard at. You know, to me, I saw myself as someone who wanted to be a music director of an orchestra. And you know, sort of a, a regular type of you know conductor. And although I've been doing that all these years, I've also been in academia and academic settings where you know you have to do a great deal more teaching. You have to explain things to an ensemble. You have to teach them how to listen, how to count, how to play in tune, how to you know what makes uh, what makes Boulez Boulez, what makes Reich Reich, what makes Mahler Mahler Debussy, and so. You you then you have to unlock in yourself different ways to come across. But then there's also the teaching of conducting, and that's been very very difficult for me because it's not something that I ever really thought about. I sort of I learned by watching and by trial and error, and um, 
uh, and okay, I did do later on in my in my in my life, I did do a couple of master classes with Pierre Boulez at different times. Uh, from 1989 to 94, I worked at the Tangwood Music Center conducting for the Festival of Contemporary Music, where I was Oliver Nussen's assistant. So I had the chance to you know to work with him a little bit. Uh, as I said, there was the Aspen Music Festival in '83 and '84. You know, but but most of it has just been by my watching and my doing. So I used to think that you know you can't really force a conducting student into a particular way of conducting. You know, you you have to you have to find what it is that they do and and help them become themselves. And I still think that. But after I don't know how many years of teaching at Eastman, maybe after or at least ten, maybe fifteen. I mean, I'm there almost twenty years. I started to think, okay, I'm going to go a little bit more dogmatic now. And I'm going to say, listen, while you're studying with me or while you're in this class with me, I'd like you to try to assimilate certain things I'm going to tell you, certain do's and don'ts. Then after that, you can decide that what I've told you is, is, is useless and throw it all away. But while you're with me, and so I started to codify more or less things that I do, things that I found after, after about 20 to 25 years in the business. I've been in the business for 30 years now. After 20 to 25 years, I start to codify things that I found worked with both professionals and with students. Um, and, and, but it's still, it's always been, you know, it's a challenge. And then sometimes you have some students who maybe you don't see the immediate potential. Now, this is very, very tricky. I'm not talking about students that I've accepted. I'm talking about students who are in a class, students who come to me. And it, it's, so I've had to work at it but I think that's made me become more open. How do you see the potential in somebody that to you, you don't see the potential, you know, mm-hmm. or you see certain problem spots? How can I make that person more effective, you know? And it, 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 it well, it teaches you to be very, very open-minded. It teaches you, it's all sorts of things on a humanistic level, I think is what I'm saying, you know, and that's something that I never thought would come from from teaching because to me I thought teaching was something that's just well you have the information you have to give it to the students and that's that but it's a whole other level of things just like conducting is too a lot of psychology that goes into that it has to be really interesting for your students thinking about your schedule and all that you're doing everywhere that just to to be engaged in your as part of your life I know that well I know from well from working with you when my brief tenure at the Eastman School of Music, um, and from from observing you, that uh, as you say, it's hard to do. It's that you you probably teach by treating them like like adults and like professionals always. So that's um that's kind of a nice. That might be the best gift for them. You, I've always. Uh, maybe because when I started out, I was like I was the same age, I was the same age as everybody. But I think, I think a lot of that is you know what I was sort of you know taught by my my mother, um, which is you know when I was a little kid, you know the golden rule and things like that, and you know do unto others as you would have done unto you. And also when uh, when she was a teacher, she taught uh, at first she taught uh, homebound children. You know, uh, so she would go to their houses, and they were homebound for various. Usually, they were they were psychological and emotional problems, and then 
she ended up teaching what was, uh, I don't know if it was called the resource room, or maybe they came up with a more euphemistic thing later on. But And I think that we were, you know, I have a, a younger brother. I think what we were taught, you know, to be to be accepting of people, of, of you know, it's not, it goes beyond just like, you know, race, religion, or creed. It's also about if there are difficulties that they have, be they be it physical difficulties or emotional difficulties. Um, and because of that, I think, you know, I, I've, Maybe it was just instilled in me, but yes, I've always approached students not as you know. <laughs> now listen here, students, you got a lot to learn from me because I've been around the block and I no 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 no. I mean, sure they have a lot to learn from me, but I have a lot to learn from them. Uh, and I don't mean I have a lot to learn because I don't know anything. I mean in terms of like one does with one's own children. You know, uh, it's a two way street. And also, uh, this was another thing that influenced me. In my first summer at Aspen in 1983, um, I remember going to a master class by the great singer Jan de Gaetani, who I unfortunately never had the chance to work with because she was on faculty at Eastman, but sadly, you know, died uh, in the late 1980s, uh, you know, rather young. She was in her 50s. But I did see this master class and I knew some of her recordings. And I was, because of the, you mentioned George Crumb earlier. Her recording of ancient voices of children right. just like you know knocked my socks off, blew me away. So I had to go see this master class at Aspen, and I went up to her afterwards and introduced myself. And it was one of those things where you just you feel embarrassed afterwards because you you know you're like you know, oh my god, you're the most amazing thing. Oh, you're recording a song. Oh, my teacher's Ray DeRoshan. He's on uh, that recording. Right. You know, but but the thing about that master class is it was one of those things in which every student who sang for her in that master class, it was like the experience of a lifetime. And what she gave to them was like the experience of a lifetime. And where she was able to take them by the end of the minutes that she worked with them was the experience of a lifetime. And at the end of it all, everybody is just like so moved and, you know, almost moved to tears and it's an emotional thing. And she says, and I want to thank all of you, all the students who sang for me today. Because like I tell, as I tell my students at Eastman, I learned so much from all of you. You know, and I just thought to myself, that's so amazing. That's so profound, you know. And I, I, I that's, where, that's where I am, you know. I mean, okay. as much as I give to them, I will also, you know, whether it's, look, whether it's something as literal as so-and-so told me of this really amazing recording or so-and-so whose background is so different from mine, you know, I've learned something from them. Or if it's just learning how to learning how to see potential or good or whatever in people, you know, and I, but I've had to work at that. And uh, so when you say, you know, you turn on the lights or you open the door, you unlock the door for students, I think that it, it works both ways. Totally. You know, and, and that part is something that's very, very special and that I didn't, I didn't think was there all those years ago when I started out as, uh, you know, in the teaching aspect of things. But I've never seen myself as a teacher. I've seen myself always as just a practicing professional who happens to teach. Right. I guess I feel I think I feel the same about myself. I think I feel I think after being a parent I feel I'm aware of the responsibility of leading people in a way that I wasn't before. So I I do have an awareness with my college students now especially teaching at a conservatory 
that they are trusting me to make sure they're not screwed in five years. Right, right. And, and I feel that. But and I've always said, I, I, this is something I've always, I've always said to, uh, you know, especially when you're in a rehearsal, as a conductor, you're in a rehearsal and you're really trying to pinpoint things or you're really getting on someone's, you know, people's cases about something like that. And then you know, I say, listen, I'm not saying this as the conductor who's yelling at you to, to play better. I'm saying it as someone who played professionally and I'm saying it as somebody who is worrying about what are you all going to do when you get out of here. So I'm trying to give you what I think are, are those materials. You know, I, I've always felt that. But the other part of it, the responsibility part, not so much responsible for like I'm responsible for their success. That's more of a concern. One is concerned for their success. But when you've had, you know, when you've had children and then you, you start to see these college students was kind of like your children in a way some right. some teachers are some teachers really do see it that way you know but you you just there's a nurturing aspect and i think that wasn't that wasn't there for me even i mean my my kids i have you know two daughters and uh they are one is uh soon to be 18 and the other is 20 but even when they were you know much younger th- that connection the connection I had, you know, as a parent to college students wasn't quite there. Now, maybe it's there for me now because they are college age. I mean, my older right. daughter is a sophomore. So maybe that's why it's clicking, it's kicking in now or clicking in, you know, that it's like, oh, wait, these people in my ensemble at Eastman, these students who are taking my conducting class, right. they're the same age right. as, my, as my kids now. That perhaps has given me a different, uh, different viewpoint on it. For me, it was, I've, I've been aware that I'm more demonstrative than I used to be. I think before I had my son, I was real like, what do you think? Let's engage in a two-way street. <laughs> and I think from, from having a son who is very strong-willed, it's much easier for me to say sometimes, we're just going to do it this way now. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, that's very interesting. Very, very interesting because I have noticed, I was like that so as a conductor, I always wanted to take the sort of the more gentle, you know, like, okay, some of them are getting it right now. Some are going to get it at the second rehearsal. Others eh, might need a couple of weeks. And you don't, you you don't want to single anyone out. So, you know, you're always paying attention to who needs more, more help and things like that. And then, and then, and then, and at a certain point, and I don't remember when it was, it may have been maybe five years ago. I don't know. I found myself being much more direct, not direct in a, in a mean way, but in a way that was like, you know, helpful, but without, uh, in other words, direct meaning immediacy. Right. You know, saying, oh, hey, by the way, yeah, the problem here is, and that note tends to be a little bit late. Yes, no, your second note tends to be late. Can we tune this chord? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, that's, that's a little flat. Yeah, we have to, and you, you help them, but you give them an immediate help so that you don't wait for the third rehearsal. And what that does is it sets a tone simply of this is the goal, this is the standard. And I think I used to, I'm not sure I had the, the method or the ability to do that because I didn't want to come off in a way that I felt would hinder anybody. I didn't want to scare anybody. I didn't want to seem like a jerk, you know. Um, and so I think I, you know, I allowed for more time right. to, to nurture and to build up. And now I'm, I'm much, much quicker at uh at at trying to i don't want to say correct things but at 
trying to help them immediately understand what the problem spots are and what they need to improve. Well, it's just efficient conducting. I find that that also, I've been, um, in my teaching this year, we, uh, I've had to direct some concerts with very short windows of time, and so sometimes you just have to correct the chord now. Because well, yes. tomorrow there's other chords. That's exactly, exactly. And, that's, and I think there's, and again, you, I think, excel at this in ways that other conductors don't. Well, I've of worked correcting, at it. but correcting I mean, the chord thank and you. not. That's not, good to know. Yeah, yeah, but, but I'm not saying wins. This is a huge problem, and let's not, let's uh, let's put that. the no, 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 just no, say no, no, no. you have to you have to be as matter of fact just like as you can, yeah. and you know because basically we're all there for the same thing. We're trying to realize you know great performance, but you know even in my teaching of so, so it, at Eastman I teach um, there's a course that I teach of conducting, and what I try to do is in in that first meeting, maybe in the first two meetings, give them everything they need to know. What I think because I've tried to distill it down to. You know, there are a few basic things you need to know about conducting. And all the rest is just standing in front of people and doing it day in and day out. You need five years maybe to, to learn these few things and get better at these few things. The next five years, with it, so now you have the arch of ten years, another ten years, you know. But I try to, um, I think that's just how I am, uh, you know, as, as a person. You know, you, you want to share as much information as you have now. I want you to know everything, you know, and, and uh, but what you're saying with the, with the conducting thing, it's more of an efficiency thing. Yes, if you only have two rehearsals, as you said, you got to fix this now because tomorrow there might be other things to fix. Well, because, and it, it, by being efficient, it leaves room for finding other things and digging deeper. Right. Basically, you want to get everything, you want to get everything as technically polished as possible to then get to the other levels that might be there, whether it's a certain manner of style or, you know, um, sometimes there's certain music that has all sorts of extra musical aspects that you need to address. Because that's also the magic of, well, that's the good thing of, well, with any, with any ensemble is when you can transcend the fact of, we're here to try to get this together so that we don't look bad on stage, but we're going to make magic. And that's even something, so we're here with Signal, um, and this week, you know, by the end of the first rehearsal, the quartet I've been working on, we're in great shape. But by having a room full of great musicians, we just keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's, and there we are keep finding the, new levels and new levels. And there's always something to do. Exactly. And it's this whole act of discovery that uh, whether it's with a certain one one particular piece that every time you do it, you discover new or discover new things or it's all of music. There's always something. I, I love discovering new things. And I don't mean new music. I mean, you know, there are corners of the repertoire that perhaps I haven't, you know, like Reese, a few couple of months ago, I was listening to tons of Scriabin. Scriabin was a composer. I just, for, for whatever reason, it just, ah, didn't, the connection wasn't there. And particular pieces like the Poem of Ecstasy. Um, I tried. And every few years, I, oh, I mean, a couple months ago, it just, boom, it clicked. And I became obsessed with this piece, you know. Um, so I'd love to have different things that I'm I'm discovering. I just think it's just the most amazing thing. Uh, and and it could be in pop music, it could be in jazz, it could be in anything. And, and with a particular piece of music, as you said, there are those many layers, you know. And and that's where the magic happens is by discovering things. It's all about that. It's all about magic and discovery. 
All right. There's a, we just summed up. You know, you can erase this whole interview and just say, <laughs> podcast number 641. It's about magic and discovery. That's right. That's it. Next week, we'll speak. Well, I think it's good. And I think you're, we're both lucky enough that we get to do that with cool people. I agree. Week in I and week out. And couldn't agree more. So with that said, let's go meet our cool friends and eat buffalo wings. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what you do when you're in, in buffalo. buffalo. Okay. Right, Thanks, great. Brad. Cool. Thank you, Doug. Thank you.